0: everybody is here well he everybody that God wants here is here so <laughs> those who are outside of God's will are not here oh. Yeah. Oh. just kidding
1: That's enough, heaven. are we going? <laughs> heaven's going to be an
0: empty place that was a that was a terrible thing for me to say forgive me I didn't
1: and it's on tape
0: yeah it's on tape but please edit that before you send it <laughs> This morning uh, we crack into chapter 9 of Daniel in some ways, particularly the end of the book when God answers Daniel's prayer, probably one of the most important passages in the entire Bible, and I—that that is not hyperbole, it really is, and so um, our task this morning is to, I don't know if we're going to get the whole chapter done, I really don't, but uh, it is, uh, in addition, it's a magnificent chapter because you see something, and that's what I tried to put up on the board. So let me um, let me just chart this uh, with you, if I can. Um, as you'll see, we're going to read it in a minute, and if you did read it, as I sort of that you do, you know this. But Daniel is reading the Word of God, which means he's reading the Old Testament books, which means he's reading the Prophets. And he tells us that he's reading Jeremiah. And he, he doesn't tell us the chapter, but we know he's reading from chapter 25. And so he's reading it, and it causes him to realize a truth. I, I'm, I'm rather certain he knew it, knew the truth, but it, it reawakens him to the importance of God's plan, what God's going to do. So this is what's important, because this often can happen in your life and in my life. As you're reading God's word, it leads them to a time of prayer. That is certainly what happens in Daniel's life here. He's reading the word of God, the Old Testament, one of the prophets, and he, he realizes this is incredibly significant because it deals with my people, it deals with the, the Jewish people, it deals with those in exile, etc. And as you'll see when we go through it again in a minute, that it was the promise that after 70 years, God's going to bring them back to their land. And so Daniel realizes that time is almost here. So it causes him to uh, launch into a prayer. And it's really one of the most remarkable prayers in the Bible. There are, uh, that, by the way, that's sometimes that's a really interesting study to do. is just to study the prayers of the Bible. I mean, that's, there are, there are dozen, literally dozens of them. Well, anyway, this, this is the part of the prayer. So I, I hope you can read that. But there are four parts to his prayer. Part one is a confession. And he, he again, he reviews and, and summarizes the, the sins of his people and why they are in exile. Then he summarizes, again, he's a very brief, pithy, short, bang, 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 but a very brief review of God's discipline of Israel, the humiliation of Israel, meaning they're taken into exile for 70 years. Then... The third part is he goes through a summary of God's justice, that this is a just thing for God to do. And then fourthly, which I just love how the prayer ends, he focuses on God's compassion. And another way to think about that is God's grace and God's mercy as he deals with the people of Israel. So it's, and I want to really look at this. That's why I'm not sure we're going to get the whole chapter done. But to look at this part, uh, four-part prayer, then, after Daniel's done praying, then God answers his prayer. And in answering that prayer, the summary, and there's a chart and stuff that we'll look at when we get to it, but what God tells Daniel through Gabriel, Gabriel's mentioned there, it's an angel, Daniel, 490 years have been decreed for your people. And this is really important, because Daniel is thinking and just try to put this in the context of Daniel the first seven chapters Daniel has heard from God through the interpretation of the dreams Nebuchadnezzar's dreams his dream that God has a plan for the ages and it involves four great world kingdoms with the fourth kingdom having a second phase to it and then the triumph of the kingdom of God that's God's plan so what Daniel is doing here is and we saw that in chapter 8, but we're going we to see it here. And we'll see it next week in chapter 10 or whenever we get to chapter 10. That Daniel's concern is now, how do my people fit into this? How did the Jewish people fit into this? So what God is doing, this is why it's such an important chapter in the whole Bible. God is saying, I am decreeing 490 years for your people. And he is so precise, we know exactly what he's saying. From the decree of the Persian king for you to go back to your land until Messiah is cut off. That's the language of Daniel 9. It's 483 years. And you know what? If you time that out from the decree of Artaxerxes in March until Jesus enters Jerusalem, it is exactly, to the day, 483 years. Coincidence? No, it's part of God's plan. But the difficult part, and uh, I think that's the right, the difficult part is 483 years and 490 years have been decreed, you're missing seven years. And that's verses 24 through 27. So again, I don't think we're going to get all this done today. But the point I want you to see is that Daniel chapter 9 gives us a model in many ways for what are our life should be like. We read God's word, which leads to prayer. Praying, praying, talking to God, and reading God's word go together. And you see that here in Daniel's life. And then what is really significant for our study in the larger picture <coughs> is how God answers the prayer at the end of the chapter. So any questions about that? I, I, I want you to kind of have the framework of this uh, really terrific chapter in the Bible. And now we're going to really dig into it. If you're following, it's on page 12. And the value of page 12 is really the page that follows, where I have a little chart there that, Lord willing, if we don't get to it today, we will next week. Everybody with me? The structure, can you read it back there? Yep. Yeah. Okay. I read, I something there. Please. I was saying 483 years, and we writing 490. The other seven years, now to the day. Well, I haven't really gotten into that. But that's what we sometimes refer to as the 70th week of Daniel. And, Daryl, you probably know this. Maybe we just know you've always had to fit it in. This is that last week right before Christ comes back. And Jesus calls that week the tribulation. So we're going to fit all that together. But that's why this is so important. Because this is, by this I mean verses 24 through the end of the chapter. This is alerting us to the importance of this framework God has for Israel. And that seven-year period at the end is a really important period. But see, and, and we'll do this when we get to this, this builds on what we learned in chapter 2, in chapter 7, and chapter 8. In that last seven-year period, and this is the first time we learn how long is this. We know that period has the beginning, a middle, and end. And we know that that chief leader of the rebellion against god in the end is this little horn this willful king and what the new testament calls the antichrist revelation calls the beast we learn a lot more about the activities of that person in this seven year period so now we learn something else from daniel it's going to last for seven years we didn't know that from two and seven and eight but now we know it's going to last for seven years and the Lord Jesus, when he addresses the end-time things in Matthew 24, assumes we know that. Because Jesus talks about a beginning, a middle, and an end. When you see the Antichrist set up worship of himself in the temple, what are you supposed to do? Flee! That's what Jesus says in Matthew 20. Quotes from Daniel. And he quotes from Daniel chapter 9. So Daniel chapter 9 is really important to Jesus. So that's what we, really, we want to really take our time. That's why I'm just, I don't think we're going to get this chapter done in one week. That's all right. We're not on a kind of time schedule. Are we? No, we're not. All right.
1: We're on this schedule.
0: <laughs> are we ready to start? That's kind of the framework. In the first year of Darius, the son of Husserah, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Achaldeans. All right, now that alerts us. As I told you before, the first six chapters are in chronological order chapter 7, 8, 9, or not. So this is taking us all the way back to 539 B.C. when the Persians conquered Babylonia. Again, this chronological order from here on out isn't important. Daniel's just telling us that in this year, the first year of Darius, the son of Huzurus, that's 6, that's 539 B.C. In the first year of reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Now, I want to observe two things about that verse. And I want to to comment on that. It's really important. But the first thing to observe is Daniel is very, very specific as he reads the very, very specific prophecy of Jeremiah. You will be in exile for 70 years. Now, Jeremiah said that, and actually 2 Chronicles 36 says it too, but God was very specific to the Jewish people of of Judah. If you do not break your penchant for idolatry and worship other gods, I am going to discipline you, and I'll uproot you from your cities, and I'm going to send you into exile. And as you know, because we have already covered that in this study, that is what God did. Nebuchadnezzar was the agent and took them to Babylon. And so this is on Daniel's mind. And so he's reading the scriptures. Okay, how long is this going to last? Oh, it's 70 years. And Daniel simply calculates. I came to Babylon in 605 B.C. It's now 539 B.C. And you just do the very basic arithmetic. It isn't much longer, is it? This is 65 years, Roughly. That means in five years, we're going to start to go back. And so Daniel, this shakes him up. It's both positive, but it's also negative. Negative in the sense that it reminds him of why they're there. So verse 3 tells us, and this is I think this is also remarkable. Oh, there's one other thing I wanted to say about verse 2. Excuse me. The other thing about verse 2, and I'm almost sure all of your translations will have this. You'll see that the name for God there is Lord, but your translation should have that in capital letters. Does it? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is Yahweh. Ouch. Boy, where'd that go? This is. I just really, really want to emphasize this for just a minute. This is the English is Lord, the Hebrew is Yahweh, and Hebrew, does, the Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. Just has consonants. So that's Yahweh. If we put vowels to it, it would be God. Sometimes in English you will see this as Jehovah. Okay. Now, what does that mean? That title for God, Lord. It means the self sufficient, self existent. Is that the Lord calling us there? (laughs) It's the self existent, self sufficient God. Now, Now, what does that mean? Self sufficient, self existent. God, self sufficient. God has no needs. Self existent. He's not caused. The, I know you've heard it. In Exodus 3.14, when Moses is saying, Who shall I say sent me to the elders? To be, Who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. I am is related to this. Do you understand what I mean? So this is one of the most important titles for God in the Bible. And in Daniel chapter 9, seven times Yahweh is used. So what that is telling us is, this is an important, um, if I use the word revelatory, do you know what I mean? It's important revelatory name. This is the sovereign Lord of the universe explaining his plan to Daniel. You follow me? So it's choosing. God is choosing because God's names are always revelatory. They're explaining about who he is. And this is really important. This is Daniel is, is pr- about to pray to the Lord, and it's Yahweh that's used it's the self-sufficient self-existent great i am of the universe he has a plan he's sovereign and he's working that plan and what he's about to reveal to daniel is how does israel fit into this plan all right now verse 3 as i was about to say because i forgot i wanted to say something about lord verse 3 is also kind of remarkable because daniel prepares to pray so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, that, this isn't saying well, every time we pray we have to put on sackcloth. That's not the point. Daniel is preparing to pray, and he is preparing in the sense that he is going to humbly come before God and review what God has done with the Jewish people. And that means it's humiliating. That means it's discipline. But it also means God is going to bring us out of this. And so you have, it's just, you know, Daniel's preparing for this. And then he begins to pray. And I've broken it into the parts up there, confession, and then a review of God's discipline, which is humiliating for Israel, then God's justice, then God's compassion. So he says, and I prayed to the Lord my God, again there's Yahweh, the Lord my God confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And just look at how he describes Yahweh, Elohim there. there are the words that are used in Hebrew. He is a God who keeps his covenant. What covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. God made a promise to Abraham. And that promise was, in Abraham, in you, I will produce a nation that's as numerous as the stars of the skies, as the sand of the seashore. And I'm going to give you land. And I'm going to make you a blessing to all people. In other words, and this is really, really important, as Jesus says to the woman at the well in Samaria, salvation comes through the Jews. What ethnic background was Jesus Christ? Church he was a Christ. Jew. There's a Samaritan woman who rejects that. She says, "You're a prophet. You're a great man. What you saying to me?" And Jesus says, "Yes, I am a prophet, but you have to get your eyes off of Mount Gerizim where you worship and your crazy ideas and focus on the Jews. The Jews whom you hate have the answer to your need. Salvation comes through the Jews. Messiah is a Jew. Now, this, all Daniel is doing is saying you're a God who keeps your covenant promises. Why is it important to say that? Because when he's reading Jeremiah 25, it says after seven years, you're going to go back. So what's on Daniel's mind? Is God going to keep that promise? Because God, you're a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And that other word, I don't know how it's translated in all your translations, but that second word is loving-kindness. That's a, that's one of those words, it, it might some of your translations might have covenant love or loyal love. I'm not sure how it's translated. It's all the same word, but it's a beautiful Hebrew word. It's chesed. But it's it's probably one of those words, every time you see it in the Old Testament, you ought to circle it or underline it or whatever you do to things like that. Because it's about God's character. God, this is what Daniel's saying. You're a covenant-keeping God. You're a covenant-making God, and you're a covenant-keeping God. You want to distill it down to one sentence. You keep your promises now why is that important for you and me because the, the, when Daniel is alive and so on Jesus hasn't come yet Jesus hasn't gone through the death, burial, and resurrection ascension back to the Father but he is camping on all the promises you made to us ok you and I live on this side of the cross has Jesus Christ made a lot of promises to you he has How do you know he's going to keep those promises? When you read the Bible and his dealings with the Jewish people, when you read the New Testament and his dealings and promises that he made, you should reach a conclusion. God keeps his promises. And so that's really important. So God, Daniel, is saying this. You are that kind of God for those who love you, those who keep your commandments, those who walk with you. And in verse 5, We have sinned. Who's the we? The Jews. We have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Verse 6. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, to your prophets. Who are some of the prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk. Zephaniah. I mean, it's all those prophets. We haven't listened to them. Who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to the people of the land. You see, that's really, really, really important. Just to, and Daniel's reviewing that. We have sinned by defiant acts against you. Plus, you kept sending prophets to us. Stop doing it. Don't do it. Because if you keep doing it, God's going to send you into exile. Stop doing it because if you don't, God's going to send. Stop doing it. It's just it was over. That's why there are four major prophets and 12 minor prophets. How many times did God remind them? Once? Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times. If you don't walk in faithful obedience with your God and stop this idolatry, He's going to send you into exile. He's going to root you up in your cities and send you to another land. Did God do that? Yes. And what Daniel is saying, we have sinned God. We deserve what you did to us. So, that's you would think, oh boy, we're going back. And there is an, oh boy, we're going back. But Daniel is reviewing why they're there in the first place.
1: This is good for us today, isn't it? I mean, when we come before God, we know He keeps His promises, and He hears our words, and so we need to be humble before Him because He is God. He is God of truth everlasting, and what He has given us in this book is all true, and it will come to pass, and we'll either be the recipients of these promises or we won't be. I mean,
0: you know. And even, I mean, taking another that's absolutely right, that's wonderful. But even taking another step, if in our walk with the Lord we do not take seriously what he says, he will discipline us. God continues his work of discipline in his children's life. Hebrews 12 tells us that. Now, it's, you know, it's totally different context in, because we're not the covenant people of God that he's given land to. That's not our relationship with God. But it's still the same thing. Pay attention to what God is saying. Don't brush it off. And I think for you and me, um, I was talking about this in, in the morning group I have at 6.30. We're talking in Colossians. We're, we're focusing on the sanctification issue, the sanctifying work of God and all that that process that this, this, takes, this takes a while. Where the old habits and old patterns of sin in our lives at the junk of our old life, we gotta break those. We gotta to wanna to get rid of those and that takes time. And then what Paul does in Colossians 3 and, and in Ephesians and some of his other books is he tells us what do we put in their place? It's the virtues that are, are uh, consistent with God's character, love and joy and peace patience. The things that characterize God are not to characterize us. And so it's, a, it's the same thing. Let's, if you distill it down into one sentence, Daniel is saying we didn't listen to you, God. We didn't listen to you. In our arrogance, we in effect were saying we don't need you. We intend to do it in the words of Frank Sinatra, "My way." <laughs> now, you can tell I don't sing. I can't. Sing. So then Daniel does in verse seven. What he does is he reviews very briefly what happened to them. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby, those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings and our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Now notice those words. Shame in verse 7, shame in verse 8, rebelled in verse 9. Instead of listening to God, we rebelled, and the result is shame. You and I don't understand how, I, I mean, I don't think we understand how shameful this was. They were the people of God. He gave them that land. He gave them that land in the conquest under Joshua. Nobody thought they would defeat the Canaanites. They did. He gave them. And then he raised up a nation from them of, of, of significant size and significant importance. Under David and Solomon, Israel was one of the great powers of the Eastern Mediterranean. But then they turned on God. And what God did through Nebuchadnezzar was the ultimate in humiliation for a people. They lost their country, they lost their land, and they lost their temple. And where are they? Hundreds of miles across a barren desert in Babylonia. That's what Daniel means by shame. You have shamed us, God. But you shamed us, verse 7, in righteousness. You are a God of compassion and forgiveness. And what Daniel's leading up to, you're not going to leave us here. God, sometimes in his discipline, puts us in barren times to change our behavior. But then he brings us back to a point of blessing. Verse 10, nor have we obeyed the voice of... Again, there's Yahweh. You just keep seeing that again and again. Our God, to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Verse 11 through verse 14. Now the focus is on God's justice. Was God right in doing this? Was he just, or is this a temper tantrum of the deity? An impulsive action on the part of the deity? Well, no. Indeed, all Israel, verse 11, has transgressed your law turned aside not obeying your voice so that the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, servant of God for we have sinned against him and him there is God. What curse? The curse that's recorded in Daniel 27 verse 15 and following. If you walk in my ways I will bless you in the land. If you do not walk in my ways I will take you from the land. This is exactly what God did in the exile. So when he says curse, I mean, this isn't some impulsive curse. This is a very clear promise God said. If you do not walk in my ways, meaning if you bring idols and idolatry into your worship as well as your worship of me, I'm going to uproot from your land. I'm going to send you away. And so all Daniel is doing, and then he says, verse 12, thus... He has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers that ruled us to bring us this great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been anything like what was done to Jerusalem. Now that's a remarkable statement. Under all heaven, nothing has been done like what was done to Jerusalem. Let's think about that for just a minute. How important was Jerusalem to God? The most important city from God's perspective on planet Earth was to be the capital of the people of Israel. And what was in Jerusalem of important besides the political stuff? What else was in the truth? It's where the temple was. It's where the Shekinah glory of God was shown, was manifested. It's where the sacrificial system to atone for sin so that God's people could walk with him. That's where that occurred. And when Daniel says nothing like this has ever been done like was done to Jerusalem, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to utterly destroy the temple. There's never been anything like this. Why would God do that? I thought the temple was what it was all about. Because his people Rebelled against him. And they, even some of their people, and some of those kings in Judah, they put false gods in the temple. Manasseh sacrificed two of his children to the pagan gods down in the valley, just south of the temple. And God said, If that's what you're going to do, then this does nothing but a building to you. And so I'm going to allow it to be destroyed. The place that manifested the presence of God, God allowed to be destroyed. Because God is saying to them, if you are not going to worship and be devoted to me, that temple doesn't mean anything. It's just a building. And I'm going to let it be destroyed. And that's exactly what happens. So it's a it's not hyperbole. This is a meaningful sentence. Nothing like this has ever happened. In verse 13, as it is written the of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of Yahweh our God by turning away from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore God has kept the calamity in store, brought it on us. This is a wonderful sentence. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he's done, but we have not obeyed his voice. What's Daniel saying? God, you were perfectly just in what you did. You were perfectly just in sending us into exile. This isn't unfair, what you did to us. Let's put it another way. We deserved this. You with me? Okay. Now, the last part of his prayer, 15 through 19, it's a wonderful way to end the prayer. He switches from God's justice to God's compassion. And now, O Lord our God, who has brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made a name for yourself. Okay, that's just summarizing the Exodus. When God made war on the Egyptian gods and proved that his name and his being was far superior to any of that silly stuff the Egyptians believed. You proved that. We've sinned. We've been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let us that now your anger and your wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. Remember I told you, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, he brought all of the temple implements into the temple of his God. That's humiliating. We're a mockery. We're a reproach. So now God, verse 17, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline thy ear and hear. Open your eyes, see our desolations in the city which is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplication with thee on account of our own merits of end, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen. O Lord, take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. We are your people. Remember us. Remember the promises you made to us. We are sorry, deep sorrow for what we've done. Take us back. You know, I'm struck by this prayer every time I read it and study it he reads Jeremiah 25 he knows it's close to their going back and he refreshes in his own mind and in those who will read his book why we ended up here in the first place and take us back not because we deserve it but because of your name you remember, this reminds me, I, I wasn't going to do this, but it just reminded me of it. Remember Moses in the wilderness? You know, I, I just, I'm always astonished at Moses. I'd never have made a Moses. You know, you, you take these people, and you lead them out of Egypt, and they watched God do ten phenomenal miracles, unbelievable miracles, that forced Pharaoh to let him go. And then amazingly provided for them. They watched Pharaoh's armies destroyed in the Red Sea. And they they start their trek. And for the next 40 years, grumbling, murmuring, complaining, what do they want to do? go back to Egypt, there there's pizza there's peanut butter ice cream there are Reese's peanut butter cups, let's go back I mean can you just, that's just amazing and Moses <laughs> Moses keeps interceding and one of the times uh, it's in Exodus 30 something but one of those times God this is really interesting, I think it's a touch for Moses get out of the way Moses I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over with you I it was a. And you remember what Moses does? It's, it's just what a leader he was. Lord, you can't do that. Remember your name. We are the people that bear your name. What will all the nations around say if you wipe us out? God, not because we deserve, we don't deserve it, but your name is at stake. And God says, You're right, Moses. Let's keep going. It's a test. Same thing. The language here is the same. Lord, don't bring us back because we deserve it. Don't bring us back because we've merited. No merits of our own, verse 18. But it's your names at stake. So now God sends an angel to answer Daniel's prayer. So let's stop for a minute. This is a pedagogical technique on my part so I can take a sip of coffee. But any questions, any comments about it? It's a great prayer, isn't it? I had one in mind. What was, when Moses did take the people out of uh, Egypt, how many people did he have on his hands? The census that's in the book of Numbers counts 600,000 men. It, and it says, and in addition, there were women and children. So if you extrapolate from the 600,000 men and you add women and children, you are in the neighborhood of 1.5 to 2 million people. Wow. That's devastating. No, it's a miracle because you can't move that many people around for 40 years without... and, and yeah. And yeah, and God—that's right. God provided the manna and the water. And, and yeah, I mean it's <laughs> yeah, in, in a way, yeah, or whole, all of Metro Omaha, which I guess is over a million now. But but yeah, it's uh, yeah, but it's it was like everything else God did in that Exodus event. You can only explain what's happening supernaturally. There's no other explanation for that, and that was so true. And that's, that is the seminal event in, in Jewish history. They always refer back to the Exodus, because that's when they became a people. And then they get the law, which is their Constitution. I saw it in that. Willie. I, Woody? I just,
1: have a, just a, a little bit of a problem understanding how Moses and Daniel both could remind God of something. You know,
0: I mean, that's kind of grandiose. You would think, God, you wouldn't have to remind God, but they do. That's the problem. Part of what I think you're saying is you don't need to remind God about anything. So what, I mean, what really is going on there? I mean, it's these two individuals, and they certainly are two of the giants of the faith in Scripture's, um, they have a singular focus, despite all you know, all of them have some shortcomings, but a singular focus. What does the glory of God look like? And the glory of God can, can is, look, looks like and is manifested in many, many different ways, but it is in the name of God. And the name of God is very important. And to maintain its priority, God, your name's at stake here. It doesn't mean that God doesn't know that, but it's just, Moses is saying that and Daniel's saying that in some ways really Woody, for their own good and for the good of the people. Let's not forget, let's not get our eye off the ball. This really isn't about us. This is about God. We are his people. We represent him. This isn't about us. This is about him. And that's still true today i mean in your life and in my life if we make the center of our life ourselves you don't need a lot of evidence to see where that leads just look all around you but when we come to faith in jesus christ we then start to get our priorities straight this isn't about me this is about the one who created me who redeemed me and has made a whole bunch of promises to me it's about him and now my task that I, now that I put my faith in picked pick the gift off the table, as we often say, is to represent him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. That's, a wonder, that's a wonderful um, mission statement for your life. I used to have my students write a personal mission statement. What's the mission statement for your life? Which, among other things, defines why you exist, why you're here. And I always challenge him, if you didn't have somewhere in that mission statement, I exist to bring glory to God, you've got to go back and do the assignment over again. Because that's the, that's the Old and New Testament's focus. This is about God. He created us for a purpose, he redeemed us for a purpose, and he wants us to represent him. And so Daniel is just saying, you created us, not because we deserved it, but because of your great compassion, you chose us. And we just drug it through the mud. And you sent us into that. Now you're going to bring us back, God. So now the Lord sends Gabriel and starts to answer his question. All right, anything else? This is a great prayer, isn't it? It to me, too. It, it was Tom?
1: The prayer it was, it was selfish to it was the that it stuck out to
0: yeah, isn't that great? He really. It's always. It's always the second person plural. It's never the first person singular in pronoun. It's always about them. We as a people. I'm just a part of them. Yeah. So he Can I be uh, a little bold here? Maybe. Maybe I'm out of line. But you know, I think sometimes it would be a good thing. In America, if we prayed in the second person plural or the first person plural, we have really sinned against you, God, as a nation. We are no longer reflecting your values, your morals, or your ethical standards. God, we're sorry for that. But you're a God of compassion. You're a God of mercy and grace. You're a God who forgives. We want to get back on the right track.
1: Wasn't that much more common publicly by presidents before the end of the 20th century than it is now?
0: And really, to some extent, even into the early 20th century, you saw that, but yes.
1: I'm thinking World War II.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. But now, I mean, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would think. If you had one of the, how many are there now, 18 or however many there are, if you had one of the candidates, and really both parties, because you've got about 17 in one and four or five in the other, if one of them would come out and say, the main purpose of my presidency is call the nation to confession and repentance. Do you think you'd have a chance? No. What, what do you think CNN would do with somebody like that? You know, I'm, I, I don't mean to name names, but I mean, that's the kind of thing that you don't, you don't, you don't see anyone talking like that because we, we bought something in the 60s and 70s when the consensus that defined America for all these two centuries broke down. And we, we, we embarked upon a privatization of religion your, your religious values, your faith is private. And we don't care what you do, but don't make it a public thing. And so we can't, you know, all the things that characterized our nation for two centuries. And that's why you can't, you just cannot talk like that anymore in our country. I mean, generally speaking, very broad thing. Well, let's pray. You know, let's have a day of prayer. But, you know, what's the president still, we still issue the national proclamation on Thanksgiving Day and all that stuff. But. There's not a meaning to that. It's uh, it, we so privatized faith that it has absolutely no public relevance, and I'm not sure that's healthy for our country. We are th- we are becoming a thoroughly secular nation.
1: Well, Jim, don't you think that we can speak out whether they're a candidate uh, and and actually, for all it's said in these campaigns, that this would. Also, it, it would swallow down pretty hard by a lot of people, but if this person. It might cause
0: some even to throw up, actually.
1: Maybe regurgitate. But that if someone had the courage to make that kind of statement that you mentioned, at <clears throat> least there would be many, many millions of people in this country that would respect that position knowing this is a guy he's, he doesn't consider himself holy but he considers the need that we have to get back to God essential for our entire nation I think, don't you think a lot of people would recognize that that is a fact
0: I, I would hope so Fred I, I don't know I would hope so
1: at a, at a convention for one of the parties, they got booed off the stage for mentioning
0: God. <clears throat> What's that? At the Democrat
1: convention, they got booed for mentioning God. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh,
0: not just a couple of people. Yeah, was, yeah. Um, up, I mean, there are there are a couple of individuals, uh, and uh, and I, I hesitate to mention the name because I'm not I don't want to get into politics here at all. But there is a uh, uh, a man that's in the Republican. Uh, primary that's seeking the president, Ben uh, uh, Carson. He is a believer, very clear and open about his faith. And he talks to some extent like that. You know, he's not as bold as I said there, which I don't think any can, excuse me, could probably do. But um, some of those individuals, uh, Rick Santorum, um, others, they're, they're, their, their faith is clear, but they're they're not talking about that. The, what Daniel's talking about, you know, the first step in renewal of our culture is, we have to be open and honest with God, and that is not going to happen because our country, uh, we've moved beyond that. Now that doesn't mean it can't. We can't go back because I think it starts, that renewal and revival starts with the church. That's where it really has to start. So. I'm just suggesting to you because I don't want to spend any more time on I, I, We're getting really, really close to politics and I don't want to do that. But it's, I think it's, it's a valuable thing for us to think about. Should we, and individually in your own prayer time or you know, in your family or even in your church, should we be saying to God, Lord, I am confessing the sins of our nation. We no longer follow the values and morals and ethical standards that are dear to your heart. Lord, we're sorry. We're saying it for ourselves, we're saying it for the nation. You know, And honestly, I think if enough people would start praying that way, I think God would hear that. I, God, you know, it's just, it's something to think about. Um, we are not in the same, co- as a nation, we're not in a covenant relationship like Israel was. But it's still, it's a standard, if in our own lives and in families and so on, as we confess and are honest and open with God, we're saying the same thing he says. And that's something God's interested in. So, yeah. I
1: have a question. It's rhetorical. not meant to embarrass anybody. <clears throat> is it right for the church to stay out of politics? Or is that a deception foisted on us over the past century? And in fact, do does a church
0: have an obligation to get into politics in a very public <laughs> There's a, I'm not sure I want to pick that up off the table it or not. Rhetorical. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, a, a church has to be very important, very careful in doing something like that because, and this is just clear, it's the law of the land. Uh, to remain a five hundred one c three corporation, you cannot do that. You will lose it. You will lose your tax exempt status.
1: I do think that's a risk. I don't yeah. know that that's the law of the land, and I understand the yeah. laws that you're talking yeah. about the, the, the you know, concept of the five hundred one c three. Right. bill that President Johnson introduced
0: in the Senate. I think the the other th- the other aspect is that's just one practical pragmatic aspect. But uh, and I'll stop. Then we're going to go back to Daniel. Um, god creates three major institutions through which he does his work the family the state and the church each have clear stewardship responsibilities for god so if that is true and i believe it is i, I can defend that by going through the scriptures the first institution god creates is the family genesis 2 Genesis 9, he gives the obligation of government to deal with certain things. And then, of course, in Acts 2, is the creation of the church. Each one has a stewardship responsibility. The state is not to raise children. That's not its stewardship responsibility for God. And when the state starts raising children, you're going to see a mess. And the church is not to defend a nation by raising an army and a navy. That's not the church's responsibility. And if the church starts raising, an, you know, it's silly, but that's the state's responsibility. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, the state is to promote justice and thwart evil. That's its responsibility before God. The p- purpose of the state, the, t- uh, the goal of the state is not the Great Commission. That's not its responsibility. It's not to proclaim the gospel to all the world. That's the responsibility of the church. But I think one of the things that's happened in our country of, of, over the last decades is that the clarity of that and the interrelationship of how those three can work has totally broken down. I mean, for example, for about 140 years, and this is since the republic was founded in, in 1797, but uh, 1787. But the the, the clarity was. The family working with the church, working with public education is going to educate the children. Now, I mean that is real, I mean that's just obvious. You see it in all history. That that is how children were to be educated. The family, working with the church, working with the school, which is public education. Public education was a value we adopted very early in our history. But it's those three. Now, are those three together today educating our children? No. It's just the state. And we certainly don't want the church involved in this. And we certainly, we're not even really excited about parents being involved in it. And so that's just, that's a sad, we've, we've, we've shattered that clarity of understanding. So my fear is that if the, if the church gets involved in politics, they'll buy the idea or get into the idea, the solution to our problem is political. The church is not offering a political solution, the church is offering the spiritual solution to the human condition, which is transformation through Jesus Christ. Verse can,
1: 20. Can, can you, well, one other thing. <laughs> Don't you feel that because we mentioned that uh, we have an 80% down to 20% of the, the American people going to church, and and we have a situation where we have half of the people going to church voting, uh, that that we need to at least encourage um in, encourage people in a democracy to at least
0: cast oh sure
1: cast their vote. Sure.
0: Yeah. That's our stewardship responsibility. We live in a democratic republic, a stewardship responsibility to vote. An informed voter. Yes, absolutely. I think we should do that. Let's look at verse twenty. Let's end Let's end by looking at the Word of God, not politics. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin to sin in my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord, there it is again, my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God Jerusalem, while I was speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, what vision? The one in chapter eight. This is the angel, Gabriel. This angel, Gabriel, is the one who announces to Mary that she is conceived the Messiah. This guy is keeps showing up in Scripture. This is Gabriel. He came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering, and he gave me instructions and talked with me and said, "O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. That you ought to underline that insight with understanding. They're wisdom words." Gabriel is saying, I am about to share with you God's perspective on the role of the Jewish people in history. And I want you to understand this. So that's it's a very powerful word, insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message, and here's that again, give understanding of the vision. Now, verse 24 through 27, and we're never going to get this done today, but verse 24 through 27 is what is called the 70 weeks for Israel. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. All right, now. Don't I have a pen? Oh, here it is. Yeah, I do have pen. In the Hebrew, it's literally 77. And as this unfolds, it's 77. It's 70 times 70 years. This is kind of a Hebrew euphemism. When he says 70 weeks, what he's saying is 70 blocks of 7 years have been decreed for your people. So, you who are mathematicians, what's 70 times 7? 490. 490, good. So, let's work this through. 490 years have been decreed for your people. Now, that's unclear, but it's ambiguous. What does that mean? Well, he gets specific. Now, what, this is what, we're not going to get this done, but we'll get it laid out. This is really, really, really important. And it's in your notes. I, I printed it out on page 13. It's, having the notes is going to be really important for next week. <clears throat> Six things are going to occur in this 490-year period. Look at what he says. 70 weeks, 77s. 70 490 years have been decreed for your people in your holy city, i.e. Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Six objectives, six purposes, six Key elements in God's plan are going to be accomplished in these 490 years. Verse 25. It's like, okay, now I gave you a number, 490 years. But those 490 years have to have a beginning. And those 490 years have to have an end. That's what verse 25 tells us. Now, I'm hoping all of your translations have these prepositions. For the most part, they should. And I'm going to tell you what you should kind of identify. Next week, we're going to really take it apart. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, that's the beginning. From, you ought to underline that. That's the beginning. And we have to determine what decree is being talked about here. To restore and rebuild Jerusalem... Next key word, until Messiah the Prince. So you have a beginning from, we've got to figure out what that decree is, until another marker. Who is the Messiah? From the New Testament, who is the Messiah? It's Jesus. Now, Messiah is the term that is the key focus of the Old Testament. We're looking for the Messiah, the Son of David. So that's what it's talking about. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven plus 62 equals 69. And seven times 69 equals 483. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in the times of distress. Again, I'll talk about that next week. Verse 26. Then after, the next key marker. So you have from, until, then after. The 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come. Even to the end there will be war, desolations of deter- determined. Verse 27. And he, we're going to have to circle that, we have got to find out who's the he here. We'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week. One week. How many years is that? Seven, Seven years. years. But in the middle of that week, i.e., Three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of the abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until complete destruction. One is decreed, and is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now that's really wordy. There, we'll talk about that next week. Jesus Christ will quote Daniel chapter nine, verse twenty-seven, in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew twenty-four, verse fifteen. He'll quote this verse in answering the questions of his disciples about the end times. So for Jesus, this is really an important section. This seven-year period, Jesus gives a name to it. He says this is the tribulation. And we, therefore, have stuck with that. So next week, because I'm already over, next week we're going to really take verse 24 through 27 apart. So if you have time, here's your assignment. Read 24 through 27. And then read, not that this is the final word, but it's its not, its but it's helpful hopefully. Read what I've written here on page 13 and page 14. If you can, I mean, it would just help you get prepared for this. Because I want to spend a lot of time on these verses. And I want to i want to connect these verses with what we saw in chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, and what we see in the New Testament. That's why this is such an important passage. Did you say you wanted us to? Yeah, 23, four, twenty. just read it again. What I just read, read it again on your own, and then read the material in page 13 and 14. That'll help, that'll help maximize the value of what we're going to try to do next week. Next week is going to be a tough week because I have to unscrew the inscrutable. I have to make this meaningful. And, and, and I think we can together when we work through this, but it's a wonderful passage. It just opens up and makes sense of so much in the rest of God's Word. Let me pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time. We're studying the book of Daniel in detail, and a lot of people haven't done that. A lot of people in the church today don't do that. But it's part of your word. It's a key book in helping us to understand what you're doing in this world. What a privilege it is for me personally to teach it and lead these guys through it. And what a, I just thank you so much for that. And I thank you for these men, their willingness to study this with, with me and to open your word and let it be just a light that shines in our lives. It gives us a greater degree of understanding in what you're doing, but it also gives gives us a great degree of confidence and trust that you know what you're doing, and we can trust you with the future. We're excited about completing this, and just pray that through your Holy Spirit who inspired it, he will bless us and give us understanding and insight into what you're doing in this world. Help us to grow in our trust and faith in you and in our dependence on you and to have confidence that you who've made a lot of promises will keep those promises to us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.